That's chat is brought to you by Walters. One last weekend of baseball and Walters is ready to see all of its friends. One last time before the end of the season, the weather will be crisp. Soto will be making a push for MVP votes. And most importantly, the beer will be cold. Come for the beer, burgers, bourbon, and baseball. We hope you'll walk on over to Walters. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here it comes. Check swing, strike three. Three sliders, see you later. Patrick Corbin with strikeout number nine. One hit of the infield variety, one man left. Corbin has pitched six good innings, but he's on the short end of a 2 nothing score. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, September 29, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of VassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, it was perhaps the ultimate test of whether Patrick Corbin was ending his oh-so-bad 2021 season on a high note. A start in maybe the single worst pitcher's park in Major League history, Coors Field, on Tuesday night. How would Corbin do off having done well in three of his previous four starts? And the answer is he did very well. Nationals did lose the game 3-1. But Mark, this is something here. Patrick Corbin and perhaps his final outing of the season goes out on a high note, makes it four good outings over his final five starts. And maybe, just maybe, he can exit this season not feeling so bad about things. Yeah. And you know what, Al, to me, it's not even just the results, you know, two runs and six innings. Hey, that, that's good. It's a quality start, but it's more about just how he looked and how he pitched. That was 2019 vintage Corbin there with fastballs over the plate and sliders that they could not touch. He had 18 swings and misses off his slider alone. That's a huge number. Nine strikeouts, eight of them on sliders. That is Patrick Corbin at his very best, and he did it against a tough lineup in, like you said, a very tough ballpark. Obviously, the season numbers are still going to look awful when he goes home for the winter, but I think psychologically, there could be a little something for him having had a few starts now down the stretch that felt more normal to him that will allow him to feel just a little bit better about the way the season ended and you know, allow him potentially to come back for spring training and at least in his mind know it's not a lost cause. You know, his career isn't over. He's not finished as a pitcher. He still has this in him. It's just a matter now of figuring out what he was doing right and duplicating it and now doing it over an entire season in 2022. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things about Corbin's really bad year is that he had had sporadic good outings. And he would have these outings, and we would talk about these outings, and then inevitably he'd go right back to struggling. And so recently with him doing better, I had that feeling of like, we're not going to celebrate this until we see some sort of consistent success. And we've seen that here in this month of September. And so that's been encouraging to see. And especially on Tuesday night against a good hitting Rockies team, like you said, in this ballpark, I thought this could have been a bloody mess. And instead it was the opposite. He goes out there and he does a good job. Like you said, nine strikeouts, two runs in six innings, issues three walks, but one of the walks was intentional. Gives up six hits, a homer, which was a mammoth homer. Two doubles, but one of the doubles was not his fault at all. Throws three singles, mostly through strikes, 64 strikes versus 37 balls on 101 pitches. And he even had a hit. Top of the third, Patrick Corbin had a leadoff single. He began his outing with three scoreless innings. In a scoreless bottom of the first, he had three strikeouts. He did give up a two-out double to Trevor Story, but that was the result of a high fly ball that landed between Alcides Escobar and Yadiel Hernandez in left field. Looked like uh, certainly Escobar at the very least lost the ball in the air, and then Yadiel looked like he lost the ball in the air as well. Corbin gave up a run, bottom of the fourth, went out five pitch walk of CJ Crone, went out first pitch single by Elias Diaz to right field, and a went out first pitch RBI double to left center by Ryan McMahon. And then you had the homer, and the homer was something else. A classic Coors Field blast, bottom of the fifth, two-out solo shot by Trevor Story on a bomb to left center, ends up measuring at a projected 475 feet per stat cast. That's got to be the longest homer given up by a Nat this season. Yeah, it was. And it's funny because you watch it on TV or if you were there, and you think, okay, that's a long home run, and you see it go well up into the bleachers. But then you see the number and you're like, wait, 475, how's that possible? And then you remember that Coors Field is so big that, you know, the 10th row of the bleachers there versus the 10th row of the bleachers in any other ballpark, it's a good extra 20, 30 feet (laughs) to it. So, I mean, that was a towering blast. And fortunately, the only real mistake that he made in this game. But, you know, you mentioned how he has had a decent number of good starts along the way. And here's the thing, 13 quality starts for him out of his 31 overall. Now, that's not a good enough total, and that's not what you ultimately want for a guy who's being paid as much as he is and has such a prominent role in your rotation. But it's again, reminds you that it's not a lost cause. That's 13 good starts that he had this year. So it's not like every single one of them has been bad, and he did finish with four out of five that were good. So there's something there. Now it's a matter of him duplicating it. I know all year we were kind of looking at the arm the release point um, was a lot higher. So wasn't really sure why I just tried diving into it a little bit, but maybe that just played off on some shape of my pitches and kind of suffered from location because of that. He thinks that made a difference. It's He actually said he got into some bad habits last year and it just took a long time to get out of it. So maybe a little bit of indication there of finally figuring out what the issue was, but you know, I'm not going to get too excited. Like you said, it's, it's a couple of starts at the end of a lost season, but it's something to hang your hat on going into next year. Yeah, the thing about Coors Field, which is always important to remember, and it's easy to forget, it's not just about the homers. Because it's such a spacious park, you get a lot of hits. You get a lot of singles and doubles and even triples because, you know, they did the thing of they tried to make it bigger so that there wouldn't be so many runs, but they may have like shot themselves in the foot in doing it that way because you have that spacious outfield. Essentially, to a Corbin, right before the homer, came one of the better defensive plays we've seen a Nats pitcher make this season. Now the pitch, swinging a high chopper. Corbin going back, fields it, plants and throws to Zimmerman. Out at first base. What a play by Corbin. 
Really nice over-the-shoulder catch of a Brendan Rodgers chopper, and then Corbin delivering a good-looking throw to Ryan Zimmerman at first base for the putout. We saw that great Josh Rogers defensive play not long ago, and Corbin with a really nifty defensive play on Tuesday night. He's got athleticism. We know that. He's a former basketball player, and he can do that kind of thing, and, and we've seen him be very good at it over the years. So it was kind of striking how he went straight from that great moment, maybe his best moment of the night, to then giving up the towering home run. But I agree with you about Coors Field, and you're right. Because the outfielders play so deep as well, you have all these hits that fall in in front of them and then balls to the gaps that roll and turn into doubles and triples. And I've always wondered if the actual answer for Coors Field to normalize it, I guess, isn't to have the distances be so deep because the dimensions are much deeper than most ballparks because of the altitude difference. Well, maybe the answer actually is have semi-normal dimensions, but a really high wall all the way around. It keeps your outfield smaller so that, you know, fielders can catch balls that might be outs everywhere else, but are hits there. And then maybe it keeps a few more balls in the park because, yeah, it's only 375 to the gap, but you actually have to hit it 400 to get it over whatever that, you know, 25-foot wall is there. I don't know. Something I've, I've wondered over the years if that would actually be the way to do it. It's one thing about baseball that I feel like can never get enough attention, and that is every ballpark is different. Like in the NFL, in the NBA, in the NHL, all the venues are the same in terms of dimensions. In baseball, where you play matters so much and impacts so much how to construct your team and the numbers that your players put up. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's ever a real fix for Coors Field. It feels like the Rockies have tried everything and like nothing seems to work, but I'm all for whatever you know you want to try to do to make things at least a little more normal. So for Corbin here, these four good outings over the final five starts, 4-3 win over the Mets at Nationals Park, September 6th, three runs, seven innings, 6-2 win at Pittsburgh, September 12th, two runs, seven innings. He did have that bad outing in a game against the Rockies, a 6-0 loss to Colorado at Nats Park, September 18th, six runs, five earned, and four innings. But his most recent outing prior to this latest one, 3-2 win at Cincinnati last Thursday night, six and two-thirds scoreless innings, seven strikeouts, and now he does what he did on Tuesday night. So we shall see. But this season, which was such a lost season and still is a lost season, at least ends with a little bit of juice, a little bit of optimism. I give Corbin credit for that. He has stayed healthy throughout the year and a huge storyline going into Nat Spring Training 2022 and going into next season is going to be what kind of a season Patrick Corbin has. Now, one thing we don't know yet for sure if it was his last start or not. So he could come back on Sunday against the Red Sox in the finale. He'd be on schedule. He said, Davey Martinez said, they're going to meet on Wednesday and discuss whether or not to come back and do it. I actually got the sense from him after this one. He pointed out that, you know, last year, the shortened season and came back and made 31 starts this year, that he's thrown a lot more, obviously, and maybe they do want to be careful and not push it too much, especially given the fact that that game doesn't mean anything from the national standpoint. It could mean a lot from the Red Sox standpoint. So that kind of suggested to me that maybe he is content to walk away after this one, but they haven't decided officially. They're going to meet on Wednesday, decide whether this was it or not. Boy, I don't know if I'd mess with this. This is a nice <laughs> way for him to end this bad season. I don't know if you want to tempt fate, okay? Because what you don't want is him to make one more start and the Red Sox just tee off on him, okay? I mean, again, not that that's going to fundamentally change anything, right? He still needs to be much better next year. But this is a nice way to end this horrible season. I don't know. I don't know if I'm tempting the baseball gods in starting Patrick Corbin again, but we'll see. 
because Patrick pitched so well on Tuesday night, Davey only had to use two relievers in this game. Results ended up being mixed. John Romero gives up a run in the bottom of the seventh inning, a leadoff full count triple by Rymel Tapia off the base of the right center field wall, and then a one-out RBI double by Brendan Rodgers over the head of Juan Soto uh, in right field on an 0-2 pitch for a 3-1 Rockies lead. Then Patrick Murphy tosses a scoreless bottom of the eighth, despite issuing a two-out six-pitch walk of Jonathan Daza, and then giving up a two-out first-pitch double by Sam Hilliard. But Murphy then struck out Tapia on three pitches for the third out. On that RBI double by Brendan Rodgers, here it is. Swinging a fly ball to right. Soto playing shallow. This one's deep. It's over his head and goes to the wall. Was that a misplay by Soto or was that just a well-struck ball that went over Soto's head? It was weird. And, you know, again, you're only watching on TV, so you only get so much. But it felt like he was playing way too shallow for a guy who's hit the ball extremely well against them, at least from what we've seen of him in the last week or so. Now, I don't know if he's playing at normal depth, he may still not get it because the ball was well-struck and it was over his head. But... For where he was positioned, it was very odd to see him have to turn around and chase down a ball that was clearly over his head. An odd one. I don't, I don't know how to explain that one for sure because it looked like he was positioned the way you would for a, a pitcher batting or for like some really weak right-handed number eight hitter. It's like they never expected him to drive the ball to right field like that and it wound up sailing over his head. It wasn't even close. It looked also like Soto initially came in on the ball and then started running back toward it. Again, like you said, we're watching it on TV. We're at the mercy of the Rockies' cameras, so we don't know exactly what happened. But yet, it looked like a potential misplay, but I don't want to go and say it with certainty because we don't know on that. So only two relievers used. You're going to have plenty of options come uh, Game 3 of the series Wednesday afternoon with our guy Paolo Espino starting. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season 
for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Celebrating his 37th birthday here on September the 28th, Ryan Zimmerman will lead off the top of the fourth against Kyle Freeland. He got upstaged on his birthday seven years ago when the other Zimmerman threw a no-hitter. Zim spent his birthday playing eight innings of left field and then came out in place of Steven Souza Jr. for the top of the ninth to make the no-hitter saving catch. Freeland winds and fires. Swinging a long drive left center field for the birthday boy. Back on this one is Hilliard. It's off the wall, caroming towards center field, where it's picked up just shy of the warning track there by Hampson. And in its second with a booming double is Ryan Zimmerman. With the Nats offense, so the Nats offense has kind of cooled off a little bit here lately. And it's funny, so far, this series of course field really has not been that big of a deal in terms of like offense going nuts. You had much more offense in the previous series at Cincinnati at Great American Ballpark. Nats on Tuesday night, just the one run, seven hits, did draw five walks, although none by Juan Soto. Juan Soto goes 0 for 4 with a strikeout, doesn't reach base in a game for the first time since September 13th, a 14-game on-base streak ends. Two-plus weeks we had gone since Soto had not reached base in a game. Does make you appreciate the run that he's been on. Yeah, this was his worst game in a long time. And not, not even just the results, the 0 for 4, but some of the at-bats were just not good. Popping up on the first pitch, grounding in a double play yet again, the strikeout late. I mean, this kind of looked like Soto from earlier in the year. And I do not want to read it all too much into it because he's been phenomenal, of course, and the man is entitled to have one off night. But I do wonder, and Davey brought this up a couple of things. One, is he wearing down at all because he's playing every day and he's, you know, despite where the team is at, he's going hard trying to win batting title, trying to make his case for MVP. So is he just kind of wearing down to some extent? And then, you know, secondly, kind of like we were thinking going into this series, oh, Coors Field, they're going to put up huge numbers. This is going to be great he might overtake Harper and OPS by the end of the week. Sometimes you come here to Colorado and you know how the ball travels here and you try to do a little too much. 
Um, you know, for me, I, you know, just, you know, as I always tell them, I said, you know, just try to hit the ball, stay in the middle of the field. I'll try to hit the ball in the air, just hit the ball hard and the balls will go. I mean, you don't have to do anything different. The balls will travel here. And um, I just want to just relax and go out there and have some good at-bats and have fun. If I'm Juan Soto as hard as it is on Wednesday, I'm just trying to stay relaxed. I'm saying I'm taking my walks and try to hit a couple line drive singles. And the next thing you know, he ends up driving a ball, you know, to the gaps or even over the fence. As much as we applaud him, as much as we commend him, what he has done here lately, I'm sure that he is physically and mentally exhausted at this point. Now, he's not going to take a day off. He's not going to do that at this, uh, you know, at this late stage of the game. But I could understand how he is, you know, not just in the last week of a season, but in the last week of a long and grind of a season for him that has worn on him. And, and I think it's understandable. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't kill Davey if he gave Soto a day off here. I, I don't think that's such a terrible thing if they do that. I mean... The nightmare scenario would be a fatigued Juan Soto suffering some kind of injury in one of these meaningless games the rest of the way. Like, that is 100% the last thing that the Nationals want here. And the way this season is gone, I don't know what to think. Like, you you kind of have this feeling in your mind of, like, is there one more really bad thing that's going to happen in this oh-so-bad Nats season? You know what I mean? So if he's fatigued, if he's playing fatigued, if he's maybe dealing with stuff we don't know about, because, you know, that's always a thing with these guys— we don't know on a day-in, day-out basis what they're dealing with, especially with this team when it comes to injury reveals, okay? So maybe Soto's dealing with, I don't know, a hamstring or some sort of, you know, oblique soreness or something. Like, we have no idea about. If that's the case, I would not kill Davey at all if he gave Soto a game or two off down the stretch here. I mean, take advantage of the luxury that is the season essentially being over. You're out of contention. No one is going to shame Juan Soto. I mean, like you said, he plays every day. He's been so durable for this team. And the stuff about, you know, the batting title and the MVP race, like it's fun and it's great and we get into it, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Like what matters is the Nats being good again. Every decision needs to have that as the backbone of the decision. What is best for the organization getting back to being good again? So only Davey and Juan are going to know truthfully what he's dealing with here, but day game after a night game, like if Soto doesn't play on Wednesday, and I think that he probably will, but if he doesn't, I think that's okay. I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah, I think that would be fine if they did. Now, they have the day off on Thursday, so that helps. But sometimes a manager, you know, during the course of a long season will purposely give a guy a day off in advance of a day off (laughs) so that you get two in a row and, you know, while only missing one actual game. So I'd be surprised. Likewise, I think he's going to want to play. I don't think he wants to uh, sit on that 0 for 4 for 48 hours. And by the way, you know, again, not the end of the world, but he is uh, seven points behind Trey Turner now. In the batting race, 325 to 318 as we tape this. So I would imagine he's going to be a little motivated to try to put together a better effort on Wednesday. And, you know, let's also give credit to Kyle Freeland, who dominated the Nats twice in the last 10 days. He did not give up a run in the, the start at Nationals Park, and he finally gave up one in the seventh inning of this game. So, I mean, whatever that guy has going on, it's something good because he has completely shut out what has been a pretty good Nationals lineup here over the last month or two. Yeah, and that scored their only run of the game on a bases-loaded walk, which tells you everything about the Nationals offensively on Tuesday night. Lane Thomas 0 for 3, but a good-looking walk there in the Nats' one-run seventh inning. Two-out bases-loaded walk to cut the Nats' deficit to 2-1, despite having been down to the count at one point. 0-2. Nats went 0 for 9 
with runners in scoring position in this game. Also in this game was Ryan Zimmerman on his 37th birthday, serving as an ad starting first baseman and cleanup batter. And Zim had himself a nice game, two for four with a double and an infield single. The old man legging out an infield single in this game. Zimmerman top of the fourth, a leadoff double off the left center field wall on a very struck ball. And then Zimmerman in the top of the eighth, one out infield single on an 0-2 pitch grounder to Rockies third baseman, Ryan McMahon. You see, who says he can't run? Crazy leg Zimmerman getting that infield single in the latter innings on Tuesday night. And also the great running over the shoulder catch in foul territory. Elias Diaz, the Rockies catcher, stands in two for three. Pair of singles tonight. First pitch swung on and skied in the air down the right field line. Zimmerman chasing in foul ground. Long run, reaches out and makes the catch for the out. Nice play by Ryan Zimmerman way down the right field line. That to me is like when he's all said and done, and I'm not saying it's going to be yet, we're going to get to that. It may not be yet. But if I'm thinking to myself, what is sort of the prototypical Zimmerman web gem play? It'll be early in his career. It's the charging in at third base, bare hand fired across to first. But the second half of his career, it's that play, the chasing down a pop-up in foul territory and making the running catch over his shoulder. And you could see he was smiling. He was laughing about afterwards. He is kidding with Luis uh, Garcia saying, I catch balls. You know, I can do that kind of thing. He looks like he's still having fun with this. And he had a good game that doubles 408 feet. And here's a case where the dimensions actually hurt him at Coors Field. Any other ballpark that's over the fence would have been a home run. He's playing well down the stretch. He's not playing a lot, but that's been by design. And he said, we asked him again after the game. You know, I haven't said anything because I really don't know, to be honest with you. So it's, um, you know, I don't want to make a decision on anything before I really have closure on it. The last thing I would want to do is say, you know, I don't want to come back and then come December. I'm sitting at home and talk with my family and kind of realize I do want to come back. He's going into this last weekend and, you know, will play however much he thinks he should or however much Davey thinks he should. And he's not going to go into this in his mind thinking this is the end of the road for him. And there's a lot of factors for him to consider, but I don't think whether or not he can still play at a decent level in the big leagues is a factor. He can. I think this season has shown us that he can still be a very productive player when used as he's been used. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Davey... Well, I, I would assume Davey's going to start Zim at least once over the weekend. But like, if you knew it was Zimmerman's last series, you probably would start him in all three games, right? And they're not going to know that. So it's an interesting line that Davey's going to have to walk here. It's like, well, do you give Zim two starts just in case it is the end? Do you say, well, no, we're just going to play this normal and give him the one start? Like, how exactly do you want to handle that? But yeah, I mean, Ryan Zimmerman, he's a big guy, but he's a very athletic guy. We saw that in his time at third base. I mean, during his time at first base, like the defensive moment, I'll always remember NLCS game one, 2019, that play that he made, that diving backhanded catch of the line out by Tommy Edmond. Here's a swing of the line drive, caught by a diving Ryan Zimmerman to his right. What a play by Zimmerman leaving his feet, a headlong diving backhanded catch by 35-year-old Ryan Zimmerman, one away in the bottom of the eighth inning. You have Anibal Sanchez working on a no-hitter. Zimmerman makes this defensive gem to preserve the no-hitter. You felt in that moment, I know I did, like, oh my gosh, Sanchez is going to do this. Zimmerman makes that play. Now, you know, it ended up not happening. But yeah, I mean, the guy can maneuver himself. Like, he is a larger human being, but uh, he's got athleticism. And like you said, he still can display that athleticism. His reflexes have always been phenomenal. 
we know he's a wizard with the glove at actually catching the ball, whether it's on a, a batted ball or a thrown ball. Really, the only negative with him from a defensive standpoint is the throwing. And to be honest, it hasn't been that much of an issue for a while because you just don't have that many opportunities at first base to have to make throws. So, you know, we talk about, oh, well, he's, you know, if he comes back, it's probably going to be a DH if there is one in the NL. And and yeah, that might be part of it. But he is still, I think last I checked, he's at plus five defensive runs saved at first base. I mean, he is still a really good defensive player at that position. And when he keeps his body in shape, as he's done all year, this is only the second time since 2010 that he will make it through a season without going on the injured list. So he has figured out how to keep his body in one piece. You know, it's only 44 games, I think, that he started at first base. So obviously a very low number compared to what he's used to, but it's worked out. And if he wants to come back and do this again, I think the Nationals will welcome him back with open arms. I think it can work like this. It's really just a matter at this point of does he want to put his body through what it needs to to get ready for a season? It's not just what happens in season. It's what happens during the offseason to get ready for it. Does he want to do all that to then play for a team that's not expected to win? But he's got time to make the decision. It's not going to – I don't think we're getting some surprise announcement this weekend. I think he genuinely is going to wait this out, see how he feels, see what the team does, see what the CBA is. There's a lot of factors that are going to be involved, but I don't think it has anything to do with whether or not he can still play. He can still play. I would think Davey gives Zimmerman the start in the season finale on Sunday, just in case. You would think probably. If this is it, you want him to get that moment at Nats Park, that standing ovation in the end of the season game. Or at the very least, I mean, he'll, he will pinch hit in any games he doesn't start. We don't know what the Red Sox rotation is, but say they have a lefty going on Saturday. It would make sense for Zim to start that game. And on Sunday, they will make sure there's a pinch hitting appearance and he will get a huge ovation and he'll probably sheepishly have to take a curtain call, even if it ends up not being the last game of his career. How about one more Zimmerman walk-off homer? And it's a homer that eliminates the Red Sox from postseason contention. (laughs) Wouldn't that be lovely? That would be fantastic. Every time he comes up with a chance to do it, I look up the stat because He's been sitting on 11 for a long time, and it's a very short list. Even at 11, he's you know tied for, I think, sixth or something. Jim Tomey is the all-time record at 13, and there's like three or four guys at 12, and it's Frank Robinson, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle. It's names like that. Always make sure I look it up because if he does it, I want to make sure I get that in there right away to show just how elite of company that is. Obviously, the majority of them came in the first half of his career. But boy, that would be pretty cool if he could have one more of those. Let me tell you, if he wants to come back, but he hits a walk-off homer (laughs) on Sunday, he still should retire because that's the ultimate ending, the perfect storybook ending. He has to retire at that moment. I don't care what he wants to do. Other uh, offensive observations from this uh, Nationals 3-1 loss at the Rockies. few things here. Yadiel Hernandez got on base three times, one for two with a single and a couple of walks. Alcides Escobar got on base two more times, one for three with a double uh, and a walk. Nats also had some good two-strike hitting on Tuesday night with some young guys. Kbert Ruiz, top of the second, an opposite field leadoff single to right center field on a one-two pitch. was nice to see that. And Carter Keboom had a single on Tuesday night in a one-run seventh, a one-out opposite field single into right center on an 0-2 pitch. We've seen some of this with Keboom lately, going the opposite way. You know, it's still like you're not seeing great production from Keboom clearly it feels like, though, you see just enough to make you want to see more, you know, like just enough to kind of make you say, all right, let's just continue this year. But yeah, he's not, he's certainly not overwhelming you either. 
No, and he had some bad at-bats in the game. I mean, the double play in the second inning was not good. Now, yes, the 0-2 opposite field single, that's exactly what you want in those situations. So you're right. There's like just enough there that it makes you say, okay, we're not going to give up on him completely. But in the big picture, it's hard not to look at the numbers and be pretty disappointed in what we've seen. And, and not just the numbers, but the the way he has looked at times. And he's still not hitting for any power, which, you know, long term, like if he's going to make it as a big leaguer, he's got to hit for power. That was supposed to be one of his skill sets. So, you know, he's got a couple more days to try to finish on a little bit of a high note. But I, like I've been saying, I think he is probably the number one question mark at everyone in the lineup, that at least the season ending lineup in terms of are they sticking with this or are they going to decide it's time to move in another direction there? Yeah. I mean, the hope is that he's another Dansby Swanson and just that there's a breakout down the line, but you can't just keep hoping for that. You want to see signs of that. And uh, we haven't seen enough signs certainly lately, but he did have a nice hit on Tuesday night. You can always email the podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Email from Tom Scanlon uh, writes, Tom, your discussions of player development made me wonder if there is some benchmarking of how our player development resources stack up against other teams. I know when the team came here in 2005, there wasn't much infrastructure, but how do we compare now in terms of coaches, scouts, etc.? That's a good question because that was a thing, I remember a really big thing like a decade plus ago, the Nats really were lacking in infrastructure. It's not something that gets talked about a lot. It's not something that many organizations like to reveal. Do we have a sense of how the Nats are now in terms of the infrastructure? My sense is that they're fairly standard, like nothing that really stands out one way or the other in terms of they have a lot more than most teams or a lot less. I don't think they're lacking. Now, they've had some turnover here recently, and there are some changes they need to make and some positions that need to be filled. You know, there's been a domino effect. All those coaches that remember when they went on the COVID IL for that period there when everything was falling apart in July, and they had to now bump guys up from the minor league staff to take some of those spots. Well, some of them are still with them uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, with Davey being immobile, he's had Henry Blanco, who's the bullpen coach, in the dugout now as almost like an extra bench coach. So Sam Naren, who was one of their minor league pitching coaches, has sort of become the big league bullpen coach. So there's a little bit of a depth issue, I guess I'll say. And they didn't, from a minor league standpoint, really get through this season with the kind of staffing that you want to have. But I don't sense that they are severely lacking compared to other teams in a lot of that. You know, we know there's some player development changes coming. I'm also curious, are there any scouting changes coming? And it's been mostly the same group that's been responsible for their amateur scouting for a while now. And we've talked about how they haven't hit on a lot of not just first round picks, but second and third round picks. And I wonder if at some point, you know, a fresh set of eyes at some of those would make a difference and have something they want to take a look at. So that would be one thing to watch for. The other thing I'll point out where they have made their greatest strides over the years is in the Dominican Republic. That was a disaster of a situation going back to Jim Bowden days and Jose Rijo and the Smiley Gonzalez scandal. And they had to strip that thing down to the bare bones, start all over. And it took many years for them to get it up and running to be a truly competitive operation. That I would say now is probably in the top third of the league in terms of their complex they have there, the personnel they have, the job they have done in scouting and ultimately signing big name prospects, teenagers who come out of the Dominican Republic and Venezuela 
as well. So that's probably the best thing they've done to improve over the years. But there are some other things they can do. And I think it's an interesting winner. I think we are going to hear about some things that they're doing and really addressing this for the first time in a long time. Yeah, uh, they need to. This season has been a, a reckoning in a lot of ways of the player development struggles. And I'm really interested to see what they do with their analytics department. They've had some real change there. The departure of this guy, Sam Madri Cohen, the departure of this guy, Scott Van Letten, who went to go run the Rockies analytics department. I know Mike Rizzo isn't the biggest analytics guy, but in 2021, you have to be in on this stuff. And it's not just being in on this stuff. You have to have a proper analytic staff. You have to have a research and development department that's properly staffed so that you can do the things that these departments need to do. Like if you ever look at what the Dodgers have and the Yankees have and the Rays have, they have these well-staffed analytics departments, you know, all of these 20 and 30-somethings who went to Ivy Leagues, right? And they're working on things that are just like so far beyond what a lot of the traditional people in the sport know. And I'm not saying you have to let all of that stuff dictate everything that you do, but in 2021, you've got to be on top of this stuff because it is an arms race. So like, even if you don't love it, you got to understand that other teams are doing it. And if they're doing things and have access to things that you don't, you're behind the times, you know, you have in the National League East, a team in the Atlanta Braves that is sneaky good at analytics. Alex Anthopoulos is a very smart guy. You know, the Braves were considered a mess not that long ago with that scandal with John Hart and everything. And they turn things around quickly. And I promise you, the analytics were a big part of that. And so we don't know where the Nats are from an analytics staffing standpoint. I've never gotten a sense that they're one of the league leaders, though. And if, in fact, you know, they have an opportunity here to beef that up, I would love to see them do that because I think that's going to help out player development a lot. And it could help out your major league players a lot. So we'll see. And I think it's fair to say that, like, they've had this run over the last decade that was so successful, but now is a time to not just say, okay, we're going to try to duplicate what we did over the last decade, but it's time to move forward and try to win in whatever way makes the most sense. And that can include doing things a little differently than you have. And if that includes more in the analytics department, then of course, that is something they should do. And you're right, Mike Rizzo, that's, you know, it's not his number one priority. It's not going to be the way that he ultimately thinks is the only way to win. But he has adapted a decent amount over the years. I mean, if you had asked him about this stuff in 2009 when he became GM versus how he feels about it now, it's a big difference. He's not all the way at the far end of the spectrum. He's not Andrew Friedman, but he's not quite the Neanderthal that he probably was, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I think it's important, too, to convey this. Analytics aren't just about, like, looking at war and looking at on-base percentage. Analytics are also about, like, uh, sports science. You know, like, when it comes to pitching now— the way that pitching is done is so different from the way it used to be done. I don't think this is properly conveyed in like the mainstream baseball media. Pitchers are thinking about things and doing things and being told things that are so different from the past. And catchers are having to process things and the work that goes into like game planning and things of that nature, it's so different. And so when we talk about like the Nationals having a hard time developing pitching and the Nationals having not really done much over the years of like fixing pitchers. I really do wonder if not being as in on analytics as other teams are is a big part of that, that the Nationals aren't helping pitchers in that sports science way that other teams can. Again, we don't know everything, right? This is all speculation because 
teams don't like to talk about this stuff. It's very hush-hush, but uh, that's like a big part of baseball right now. And if the Nationals are lacking in that part, I think that should be like one of the biggest priorities this offseason to start the catch-up, to get up to speed in that part. So we'll see. Uh, Game three at the Rockies, Wednesday afternoon at 310. Paolo Espino will make what is his final start of the season, right? There's no chance we see Paolo this weekend against the Red Sox. I guess maybe in a relief role, possibly somehow, but otherwise... Uh, this will be the final start of the season for the secret weapon. Yeah, I, maybe there's a relief appearance to come, um, you know, on short rest, but no, he will not be making another start. And, you know, I mean, just think about how far he's come. I mean, we've had so much fun with him. Uh, I just think back to that first fill-in for Steven Strasburg so long ago and could not have imagined at that point what he would end up being for this team, which is, let's be honest, their most consistently effective starter. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some of that's because of what he's done. A lot of it's because of what the others have not done. But it's been a pleasure to watch him all year. And for his sake, you hope he goes out on a high note. We have not seen the ball fly out of Coors Field very much this week, surprisingly so. Uh, For his sake, you hope that he continues that trend and finishes up with one more nice start. He needs eight strikeouts to get to 100. That may be a tough assignment for him, but, you know, who knows? We'll see what he can do. Yeah, it's not exactly Max Scherzer getting to 3,000, Paolo getting to 100 in the season, but uh, such is the state of the Nationals' 2021 season. You know, we have had so few series this season in which the Nationals have been 3-for-3 in terms of the starters all delivering. You potentially can have that in this series. Josiah Gray overall was good in Game 1, Patrick Corbin was really good in Game 2, and we will see what the secret weapon ends up being in game three. You tell us what you think. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. Also can make a donation to cover the production costs of the Nats Chat Podcast, as was outlined by Tim Shovers in a recent installment of the pod. Uh, you can do those things by going to this website, natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.com. Dot square dot site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. From Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. And we will leave you now with a World Series voice memo, a tale of October 2019. This one comes to us from Sam Cowan of Severna Park, Maryland. Hey, Tim, Al, and Mark. Thanks so much for the podcast this year. Uh, it's been a real bright spot uh, in an otherwise mostly bleak season. So, Keep up the great work, and thank you. For my 2019 memory, I had a, a slightly different take on the uh, the 2019 wildcard game than some others have, have offered so far. To kind of understand my, my moment, you need to kind of rewind a little bit. I came of age as a baseball fan in Chicago uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. I was at the 93 ALCS, uh, where the... Blue Jays beat the White Sox and was then at the uh, 2003 NLCS where the, the Marlins beat the Cubs in Game 7, the game after the, the Bartman game. And it just had these vivid memories of the, the stadium silent and the other team running on the field. And kind of all you hear is, is the other team screaming and celebrating. Moved to Washington shortly after that and, and just over time became a diehard Nats fan. And then, of course, I was at the three game fives and the DS, the 2012 against the Cardinals and then against the Dodgers and Cubs. And so kind of was just predisposed to, to negative thought in those elimination games. You then get to 2019, the wild card game. 
you know, you show up at the stadium, everyone's fired up. Max, you know, of course, serves up those two home runs early. And you're thinking to yourself, well, this will be different. At least it won't be as painful this time. Kind of know from the beginning it's over. And then you kind of get to, to Juan's shot to right field at the bottom of the eighth. And when that ball went you know, just under the glove and travels to the wall, I remember thinking or turning to my wife and saying to her, they're going to win. They're going to win. I know they're going to win. And sure enough, you, know, you get to the top of the ninth and you know, Huddy gives up. Uh, there's runner on first. And even the last out of, of the game was a shot to the warning track to center field. But I always knew that they were going to win that game. You knew after you know, what happened in, in the bottom of the eighth that they were going to win that game. And I think that, that mindset for me really carried forward throughout the playoffs. You know, Dodgers game five, and then, of course, in the World Series, down 3-2. But you just had this feeling this was, this was the year. You kind of knew it was going to happen, and that wasn't a mindset I had ever had. So uh, anyway, that's my, my 2019 memory. Again, thanks, guys, for, for the pod this year. I know things are going to turn around quickly. Al, I know you're skeptical. You've got your theories about your organization having issues, but but I'm keeping the faith. I think next year is going to be a great year. So anyway, thanks again, guys. Can't wait to hopefully listen to you a little bit in the offseason, uh, and then we'll, we'll do it all again next year. Go Nats. Here's the one-two. Swing and a miss on a changeup, and Strasburg sets him down in the sixth inning. One hit, one double play, one strikeout. So a scoreless inning of work for Steven Strasburg in his first big league relief appearance. 3-2. Swing and a miss. He struck him out on a curveball. Strasburg retires the side in order, and he has three strikeouts over two innings of relief. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.